Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, where we make old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard. I am the R in OSR, and joining me this evening is someone you've probably seen on several other shows, uh, most notably on Natural Ones with the Basic Expert. He's also been on the Dutch Oven with Victor Gorchev, and of course he is one of the creators, the creator in fact, of the Chronicles of Iris, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, please welcome to Rolling Bones for the first time, Mr. Greg Lambert. Greg, welcome to Rolling Bones. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad Absolutely. we were able to stream. It is great to have you. You you are a favorite of several people who I admire, and uh, we've been comrades in the Basic Experts Gilded server, uh, where I annoy people with my talk of mayonnaise. Uh, <laughs> Hellman's for life. Ah, get off. Leave. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm canceled. <laughs> the, the mayonnaise cancellation has begun. Don't let Thothamon hear you say that. Yep. Anyways, uh, we have kind of an interesting topic tonight. Uh, something that, that Greg and I have been talking about a little bit. Um, and you guys hear me say at the top of the show that... Uh, you know, we make old school young again here. One of my big focuses on Rolling Bones is I want to present these old school ideas to newer players, to people, to be quite frank, my own age, you know, 27 and younger, who didn't grow up playing those games. And so to, to kind of discuss some of those ideas tonight, uh, you know, I've got Greg joining me here, who is a creator of some great old school games. So, uh, you know, Greg, thanks for... Uh, kind of taking on this uh, this heady and somewhat difficult topic with me tonight. No problem. I wanted to, I mean, that's basically the whole reason why I got into table, like publishing RPG books in, in the first place was to try and tackle this subject without even knowing about the whole landscape of the culture, war, or whatever was going on with D&D. You know, it's just something that we wanted to do. Yeah. So that's where I am today. Absolutely. So before we get into that, though, we, we do need to get some background on you. Uh, so let's start at the beginning here. How'd you get into role-playing games? Well, you know, I played Hero Quest and also uh, Dragon Strike and a few other kind of D&D-related board games when I was in middle school. But my, uh, my co-author, who's my best friend for like 20-plus years, Got me into D&D through AD&D 2nd Edition in the late 90s. And uh, we were huge fans of Dragonlance at the time as well. 
We had huge fans of Dragonlance, like massive, and there were a lot of kids who were like that. So we played it. We played AD and D all the time. We played it at school. We played it before class, after class, during class, on the bus. We played it at home after work. You know, whatever. Like we were huge into it. So in the nineties, AD and D Second Edition was my thing, and uh, I. We started out with Dragonlance, but eventually, because I was so obsessed with Tolkien and the Cimmerillion, I wanted to make my own world. So I created this world, which I called Iris, which actually is, uh, in the language of the world, means ether. It's like the a, their word for ether, which is the mystical miasma that empowers magic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we I flushed that out when I was a teenager. It, none of the... Almost none of the stuff I wrote back then holds up to this day, but a lot of the ideas are still present in the material that I created recently. Um, so we played, and we had a long hiatus for probably from like 2005 to 2020. So like 15 years, we didn't play D&D at all. Had no interest in it. And we got back into it because of 5th edition, surprisingly. Because uh, my co-author comes to me and is like, hey, have you heard of this new edition? It's similar to second edition. Like, how? Well, it's got, you know, it's got the proficiencies and it's got backgrounds, which are similar to kits. And, you know, it kind of goes, because we knew about how crappy fourth edition was and we mm-hmm. never played that. But fifth edition drew us back in. And so, like, you know what, let's resurrect Iris and I, I, I kind of want to bring that back and... We started learning about like Kickstarter and stuff like that. So I was like, there's no reason I can't create a book for the the world that I made in high school for like a general audience. Like, why not? You know, it's a classic world. I, I feel like people would enjoy it. So that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for all the hate that fifth edition kind of has gotten over the past couple years, um, if you kind of put yourself back in that 2014 mindset of when, e- even when it was still called D&D Next before it was really officially branded 5e, I-, I think a lot of people forget that a lot of second edition era players were drawn back in by 5e because it harkened back rather than being more of what uh, you know, 3.5 and, and 4E had turned the game into. It harkened back to specifically something that, uh, like, Gen X gamers uh, grew up with and remembered. So I I think that's something that a lot of people need to remember when, uh, you know, looking at kind of the legacy and history of 5E, at least in uh, what Crafty Matt likes to call the D&D Next era. Right. You know, me and Victor Gorchev have a hashtag for that. We call it O five R. It's like the the OSR, but O five. You know, original fifth edition, twenty fourteen edition when it first came out. Before it became r- ridiculously popular, the, it, you know, it has some flaws. You know, uh, the fifth edition system is not perfect by any means, but compared with what we had in the past, like it was a breath of fresh air and. We had no we had no clue that there was this burgeoning like huge fifth edition community of people that were doing live streaming and stuff. We just like, oh, this is a cool game. Let's get back into it, you know. 
we're very naive when it came to that type of stuff. Hmm. Now, uh, the, the next question that I have for you, just to kick things off here, we do this thing mostly out of love. There's not a lot of money to be found in this. So, you know, we dedicate ourselves and our time to this hobby because we enjoy it so much. And that love comes from fond memories. So, Greg, if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Fondest RPG memory probably is going to be an, a session that we had in our original Iris campaign in 1998. Um, now, keep in mind, I was part of the generation of players that we didn't play like what you would expect from first edition. We didn't have, you know, hex grids and stuff like that. Not a high level of lethality, although it was still there because it's AD&D. But we had a more of an epic story that was influenced by Tolkien and Dragonlance. Uh, the players, my co-author and his buddies, uh, encountered, uh, stumbled across an ancient ruin that had many like huge statues of famous heroes and gods and mythical characters that had all been turned to stone uh and they were all in like these anguished positions and they were like weeping and it was really sad and like i actually was playing some like really sad music and like to this day like when my characters came across that it, like affected them somehow like they really like, that really stuck with them over the past, like, 20-plus years. Like, encountering that is not something you would expect to see. Like, just, it's, like, kind of a connection to the past and, like, holy crap, there was, like, this whole era of this world that's now forgotten and it's, like, it should be remembered, but you can't. And it's, like, you know, there's a lot of, of emotion there. So that was a cool session for us at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... There's something really special when your players actually have some kind of emotional response to the lore of your setting, where they actually feel like something of import is happening, rather than just, oh, I don't know who these people are. When, when they actually form that genuine bond and connection with what you've created, it's one of the most special feelings you can have as a game master. Yeah, I agree. And that's... I, yeah. From the, I'm friends with tons of OSR people and like tons of people in this kind of like general sphere who might like roll their eyes at that type of thing sometimes, mm -hmm. but it is a thing that like it should be embraced. Like as yeah. long as you're not being stupid about it, like we're not trying to have a therapy session at our table. Mm -hmm. We're just like if you can experience like storyline and that and that level of like intensity, go for it. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, last time I was on uh, Natural Ones, we, we actually talked about this a little bit. There's this tendency in the old school community to be, I mean, it's, I know this word is very loaded nowadays, but it's reactionary. It's this idea right. that, you know, if people are playing stuff like Fate Core and uh, Powered by the Apocalypse and, you know, they're story gamers, for us to you know, put forward something that's better than fate or better than powered by the apocalypse, we have to completely reject all, you know, sense of storytelling or story in games. And that's just nonsense because I think that's really what hooks a lot of people is 
this feeling of you are experiencing firsthand, first person, a fantasy novel that is unfolding before you that your choices are affecting. Right, and that's the way that I DM'd, and that's the way that a lot of, tons of people were in the 90s. I mean, the game basically almost developed into that from 2nd edition onward. And you can thank uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Salt Lake City or whatever kind of school that they came from where they kind of invented that type of um, a traditional, like, gameplay method where everything was kind of a story-driven and, you know, there was a reason why there was a vampire in the bottom of the dungeon. It just wasn't there because of a random roll, right? right? It actually had a story behind it and a reason behind it and, like, you know, and that was presented to the players, but I can I can understand why a lot of the old school guys who grew up with OD&D and BX first edition, the game was not really like that. I mean, I'm sure there were some people who played it like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the way it developed kind of moved away from the traditional wargaming sensibilities of D&D and that kind of rubs some of the old the old guard in the wrong way. So I totally get it. Like there's two schools of thought there. They're both valid. I, I just don't think you should lean too heavily towards the extreme of one or the other. Yeah. You know, like D and D, yes, it is a war game, but there are storytelling elements. Even if the players create the story and the world around you. They're still creating some kind of fantasy world that you latch onto. On the other hand, you have the Dragonlance-inspired um, epic narrative, which is what we're used to now and what, what what I played. But if you make it too railroady, if you make it too on the nose in terms of telling the players exactly what they must do, and if they deviate from that, then it's going to fall apart. That doesn't work either. You have to strike a good balance. Yeah, this is something, the first time I was on Legion of Myth, I said you know, something pretty similar. Uh, you know, Servant of Shiloh has made the same uh, point in the, in the same kind of way. We're playing role-playing games. So yes, there's a game, there's rules, there's structure, but there's also role-playing and story. It, it, you're, you're looking for some kind of Aristotelian balance here between pure narrative where you might as well just be sitting around in a circle telling stories around a campfire and pure gaming where you might as well be playing a board game or a war right. game. So not to insult the, uh, the, the more war gaming focused people by comparing what they're doing to board games, but somewhere in the middle lies role playing. And I feel like it's more towards the story side of things. It does. And, the old school ideology is that the the players create the story through their actions, yeah. and that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, but you know there is the traditional gaming method that I mentioned, where I feel like the DM is in control. It goes DM setting players. Mm-hmm. You know nowadays in the weird fifth edition world of Twitch streaming and Roll Twenty and D and D Beyond and all this VTTs and stuff like that. Players are number one, mm-hmm. right? Like, but players are override the DM 
quite frequently, I disagree. I feel like the DM is the the arbiter of the, the setting and what happens in the world. And the players can, of course, make many decisions and influence that. Uh, but the DM has the final say, especially if they created the setting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, another aspect of this is whether you like it or don't like it, I think it's fair to say Critical Role is one extremely influential on the way that modern gaming is perceived and two it's more of a tv show than it is a representation of how the game is played but what you're seeing is a lot of people are watching this tv show watching this uh you know piece of entertainment not realizing that this is not how the game is usually played and coming to the table with this expectation of this is going to be just like we're on a TV show, essentially, without even you know realizing that what they're watching is more entertainment than uh, gameplay, actually. So I think one of our challenges in introducing old-school play to younger audiences is getting them out of the mindset of you need to be entertaining and getting them into the mindset of you need to be imagining yourself in this scenario or imagining yourself as this character that you're playing in this scenario and making it, you know, your decisions based on that rather than trying to make people laugh at the table or anything like that. You have to think about what would this character do given these circumstances and given the abilities that I have. Yeah, there's a classic meme, an older meme where it's, I guess it's from 4chan. I'm not sure, but it shows like what the the old gamer imagines when they think of D&D versus the new. Mm -hmm. And it has the old grognard on the left and like his thought bubble is like um three hearts and three lions and like Tolkien and like all this classic fantasy and like he's thinking of literature and adventure. And, like, he's the old grognar. And then the new guy over there, his thought bubble, he's just as enthusiastic. But his thought bubble is, like, Critical Role and Stranger Things. And, um, you know, all this geeky stuff where it's, like, he's about the social experience. He's there at the table to have fun and laugh and be, like, oh, my God, so random, you know, with his friends about D&D. It's, like, two different mindsets that it's hard to... It's hard to um, reconcile those, but it is possible. Hmm. Yeah, but I think what we run into, and, and you may disagree with this, uh, and if you do, I'd love to discuss it with you, but I feel like one is more sustainable than the other. There's only so much mileage that you can get at a table out of how much can we kind of make each other laugh with, you know, stupid hijinks that we're coming up with on the spot. You know, how many times can the whole table... Uh, kind of, you know, grip their stomachs laughing as they're doubled over when the bard goes, I'm going to try and sleep with the dragon. Whereas oh if you approach it with kind of that old school, that old style fantasy mindset of I am a hero or I'm at the very least an adventurer. Uh, or, right. You know, someone out for his own profit trying to survive in this world that otherwise would, you know, trample over my corpse. I, I feel like one creates kind of a more exciting environment than 
the other where it's all of it, I think it's the difference between satisfying something internal and satisfying something external where the external is very finite but the internal is infinite and essentially the possibilities are endless as to what could happen if I truly uh, you know embody this character that I'm playing it's the transcendent versus the transient. Yeah. And that, that sounds very pretentious. I apologize. But like Don't worry about it. You know, I if we Aristotle, you're you're good. <laughs> yeah. So like if we're we're talking about classic fantasy. Mm-hmm. Right? So so what what exactly does that mean and how does it kind of differ from contemporary or modern fantasy? I think that's an important aspect to the discussion. And, uh, you know, to me, I think classic fantasy is basically anything that influenced D&D, mm-hmm. you know, so prior to 1974, even though Gygax, he didn't like Tolkien necessarily, mm-hmm. he still used Tolkien's ideas because he knew it would be popular. But classic fantasy is a combination of mythology and history, first yeah. and foremost, that's done in such a way that you as an audience member, can't differentiate between the two. And Tolkien called that concept verisimilitude, Mm. right? He wrote about it frequently, and he rightly claimed that Middle-earth contained such a thing. But that concept has been around since Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. So I'm not saying that, like, modern fantasy like Harry Potter can't have verisimilitude. It can, but it is more of a classic hallmark of like 20th century, like old school fantasy. Um, I think classic fantasy should have one, it should have adventure and danger. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's, it should have that. So, this is where it's difficult to reconcile with what Wizards of the Coast has been doing. Because if you're expecting fantasy, including fantasy games like D&D, to always have adventure, to always have challenge and danger, then what are you doing as a barista in Starbucks, right? You know, there's a lot of people have made fun of that. I said that's an old news at this point, like stuff like Strixhaven. But it's still, the the point is still there. Like it's it's modern fantasy, modern role-playing games are moving away from that in some aspect, especially with Wizards of the Coast, not all. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it should, it should have that. It should combine history and mythology. And also, now this is going to be a controversial point on my part. And this is something that I think modern uh, D&D and modern fantasy games lack. And it could be a strong draw for modern people if you can present it in the right way. But it should have some kind of moral lesson or it should at least imply an adherence to some kind of transcendental value system. Yeah. So I'm not talking about like necessarily like a specific religion, but I'm talking about storytelling conventions that teach a lesson like the hero's journey or the idea of, of good versus evil, technology versus magic and nature, you know, that kind of thing. We're missing that core that core feeling of like ideology or, or transcendental morality and fantasy that's been there for hundreds of years. That's it's totally stripped away in favor of, I don't know, some kind of comic bookish, like a, Avengers style of fantasy that we see now. That's 
it, it, it's not going to hold up. It's not going to hold the test of time, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, w- what you're seeing in a lot of kind of modern stuff is a combination of that Joss Whedon, James Gunn sense of humor that I'm really just entirely tired of to the point where I even question why we let those two men dominate uh, so much of entertainment up until this point. Uh, but you, you see that mixed with almost a, uh, like a mirror image of like a Kirk Cameron Christian movie, just with everything that would be on the like opposite side of what (laughs) a Kirk Cameron Christian movie would be preaching. But with the same tone, the same attitude, the same ham fisted approach of, we have to get these ideas across. And that is not transcendental. It's not something that resonates deeply within kind of every human being. Um, so I, I get what you're saying. We, we need stories in our role-playing games that call upon these universal themes that can be seen in all of the best stories, be they ancient or modern. Uh, and I think you mentioned some, some great uh, examples there. Yeah, I mean, there are there is some classical fantasy that doesn't do verisimilitude very well um like c.s lewis the chronicles of narnia he has the ideology there that is what he believes is you know going to be transcendent but he then tolkien comment frequently commented about c.s lewis's work he just shoehorns in stuff and it just seems so random and you know at, at from time to time it just doesn't serve like the strength of his world building. So that's an example, I think, where like the core verisimilitude of classic fantasy doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. But compared to modern work, the fact that he does have an, an, at least an attempt to include ancient mythology and fairy tale and these stories uh, in his work along with an ideological underpinning makes it superior to what we see today and like something that Wizards of the Coast would make. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that probably, and a lot of people might agree with me or disagree, but contemporary modern fantasy is probably best exemplified by Harry Potter. Um, that started the whole movement and like this, I guess, kind of very modern fantasy, which is in some ways it's Narnia-esque, but... Harry Potter takes the tropes of getting objects and characters from mythology, but it doesn't have that, that moral underpinning. Like, yes, it's like, you know, it's okay. Harry Potter, you know, there's some good versus evil there. That's sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't have that resonance. It doesn't have like a, an ancient, like transcendental, like feeling to it that, that like makes you feel like okay, this is something more important than myself, mm. and that's what C.S. Lewis and Tolkien have that something like Harry Potter doesn't have. Yeah. Now, how does this relate to role playing games? So, role playing games are just a game. Like you are playing a game, um, but when you're playing like a fantasy game, some of those concepts must, I think, must be in the background in order for you to really get into it and understand like what you're doing. Like you're not just playing a dwarf because he's funny and has a funny accent. 
A dwarf is like something that means something transcendental to humanity. Yeah. He he, he has um, essential elements that you might not want to play if you're a human being, but as a dwarf, you can lift that out. He's greedy. He's stubborn. He's harsh. He's looking for gold and treasure. You know, he lives under the mountain. This is all stuff from hundreds, thousands of years ago. So it's like, you know, that's where fantasy role-playing has an advantage in being able to teach players at the table about our history, about our mythology, about, you know, what makes us human, basically. Again, that sounds pretentious, but it is true. Yeah, You know, it's it's not supposed to be as superficial as what modern gamers seem to think that it is. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's a lot of these trappings that are just built into what each of these fantasy archetypes are that people have just forgotten about. And so I, I think one of the ways that we need to um, approach fantasy moving forward is to really reconnect with the philosophical roots of a lot of these things. So like you mentioned dwarves. Uh, I see dwarves, elves, and humans as existing in a continuum or on a spectrum with each other where dwarves are, uh, if you want to get pretentious, let's get pretentious here. Uh, dwarves <laughs> are the toad in the swamp, uh, as Soren Kierkegaard would describe them. They're grounded. They're folk, you know, they are close to the earth physically and, uh, you know, spiritually, essentially. They are grounded in reality, grounded in... Uh, things of the earth. Then you have the elves who seem to be far beyond everything and, you know, so far above and off in their own world, aloof to everything that's going on in reality. But then you have humans who are what Kierkegaard would call the Knight of Faith, who are able to leap from the earth to the things that are above the earth and exist in both places simultaneously. You don't have to read Fear and Trembling and understand everything that that book has to say to understand that. But what it comes down to is I feel like that's baked into the dichotomy, or not dichotomy, because the, there's more than two, but, you know, the, the, the thing that humans, elves, and dwarves relate to each other with, that, that relationship that all three of those main races have with each other, uh, I feel like comes from that particular uh, paradigm. Right, and I agree. And then you have um, the Conan-esque, the Ubermensch. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's... it's. I hate to compare Conan to Nietzsche's Ubermensch because that's very nuanced. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know everything about it, but still, Conan has the will to power. He's there to, he's there to conquer. He's there to live. He's there to love. You know, he, he takes the world by his own hand. And he's not he's not narcissistic. He's just a force of nature, basically. Right. You know, there's a lot of different aspects to classic fantasy that can be applied at the at the gaming table. And uh, I feel like if you introduce like some of those concepts to modern players, like they're they're gonna latch onto it and be like, oh shit, that seems like kind of cool. Like you know, because modern players, like let's be honest, I'm gonna rant a little bit. Um, here now, now bear with me here. All good. So 
there is a stereotype of the fifth edition player in general yeah. among like the old school guys like us, even though you're not necessarily that old, but fifth edition players are tourists. They just want to have that social experience. Like we talked about earlier with, you know, stranger things, critical role. They, they want to be baristas in coffee shops. I feel like there is a small niche of that, especially with the live streamers and the people that have like these well-produced like uh, you know TV shows that they go on Twitch and they pretend like they're critical role. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's true with them, but ninety-five percent, I would say nine, maybe even more than ninety-five percent of actual fifth edition D and D players in your local game store at conventions creating characters and making adventures they're not like that they want adventure they like fantasy like you know they grew up with the lord of the rings movies the originals the classics like that's how they were introduced to fantasy so they love that they they like uh game of thrones you know game of thrones is flawed it's not necessarily classic fantasy i don't think it um but it's still like old school type of no very gritty osr related fantasy like so they're not alien to those concepts like they can be shown maybe through other systems besides 5e like hey this 5e is awesome like you're enjoying it but check out you know check out the old school stuff look at this like if you like lord of the rings if you like game of thrones and conan the barbarian this is a better system for that. And you can show them like OSE or you can show them uh, Castles and Crusades and explain like, look, you know, 5e, it's impossible for you to die. You're like yeah. a superhero. You know, you're like you're Superman or you're Wolverine. In this, if you go back, it's actually closer to the stuff that you like. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of appeal to their sense of like taste and be like, oh, shit, you're right. You know, like this is kind of cool. Like you can you can show it to him pretty easily. I, I feel like I don't think that five E players are necessarily like a lost cause. You know, like yeah. they're they're open to different interpretations of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to further illustrate your point, if they actually did enjoy being baristas or being uh, you know magical school children or you know whatever stereotype we want to pour it onto them the, the average campaign length would be greater than six sessions because they'd be <laughs> having fun and they'd still be the the fact that campaigns end between like three to six sessions shows they're not getting what they think they're gonna get out of it and so what we need is you know people who are willing to actually show these uh, kind of lost gamers who aren't getting what they were hoping to get out of 5th edition, that there's something that's a little bit stickier here. There's something that will scratch that itch. There's something that will appeal to what you're looking for and maybe don't even know that you're looking for. We just have to be... I think, honestly, we have to be gracious enough to say, look, I understand that you're used to a certain style of play. This isn't that. But let me show you what this is. And so rather exactly. than saying, you stupid kids and your stupid game, you're saying, let me show you my game. Let me show you 
what my friends and I have been playing for 10, 20, 25, 35, 40, 50 years. Yeah. And I think and local... that's the way we're going to get people. Exactly. At my local game store, which is Level Up Games here in Athens, Georgia, um, they have 30 or 40 role players like almost every day at tables playing D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. But people have come in and said, hey, you guys, do you want to try this game? And they'll hold up like Mothership, right? <laughs> and they'll, and so, okay. And people will be playing Mothership and they'll be playing Morkborg, which, you know, Morkborg is its own thing, but it's like, that's very different from fifth edition for sure. Like they'll be playing um, Root, which is a board game, but still it has like some role playing aspects to it. Or Humblewood, mm -hmm. like my book is being carried in there. Like they have they have copies of it, so like they're open to it. They're like, yeah, let's let's check it out. Especially with the nonsense that Wizards of the Coast has been doing. Like I don't think like average players know what's going on. Like they see some shady stuff going on. They're like, eh. Like, they just are kind of soured on the 5th edition thing after what Watsy's been doing. Um, but let's, can we, I think we should address some uh, comments in the chat. Yep. Want to take a look at that? Yeah, uh, and to, to start off with chat, um, Lou Alou here from Dandelion Games mentions uh, that in his experience, rarely does anyone play a more old school adventure through a more basic rule set without coming away a convert. Uh, he says he's seen it a million times. I've experienced it myself uh, in, in my own gaming. So I feel like it really is just a matter of, you know, okay, we know that you have played this way before. I want you to sit down for a little bit, and we're going to show you how to play this way. Yeah, exactly. And even if they were introduced to fantasy through different means, like a younger audience... Victor Gorchev says, at least Hogwarts has dangers and mysteries. Yeah. This is true. In Hogwarts, there are coffee shop workers, but that's not, you know, that's not the Chamber of Secrets. The Chamber of Secrets is essentially a dungeon crawl. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, there there is something there, even if it's not connected to an older ideology or a, a sense of, like, mythology or history. There is still something there. Like, you know, it's not completely devoid of that. Uh, at the very beginning of our chat, Crafty Matt said, what is Greg going to do with the OSR? Or, or are you going to be going with the new system? Uh, I did want to address that. The answer is yes. We are moving to Castles and Crusades. Uh, and our next book is going to be Castles and Crusades, which is our Wilderkind book. And I'm going to do our first book completely converted to it that's going to take a long time though like a whole year probably mm -hmm. yeah i i was actually saving that one for kind of the end conversation but yeah i mean that is a an excellent point to be brought up with anyone who comes on here with the way that this ogl situation has unfolded it's it's almost a question of you know people who are building games and systems that lean heavily on, you know, needing the OGL, especially people like, uh, like Victor Gorchev, uh, who, who are very committed to that O5R mindset you mentioned, it, you know, at this point, you know, what do you do? What direction are you going in? I know Victor's making his own, uh, making his own system. Uh, but you know, I, I think castles and crusades will be a great alternative for, uh, especially stuff like Chronicles of Iris that kind of strive to be, 
more on the heroic side of classic fantasy. Right. And so, like, you know, going back to the topic of how do you how do you introduce old school gaming to a modern generation? You talked about appealing to their sensibilities. Hey, man, you, you've seen Lord of the Rings. You've seen Game of Thrones. You know what it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. right? So you can you can go that route, or you can just flat out, if you feel like not everyone's going to respond to that, because not everyone, a lot of gamers are just there for the rules. Like, there's a lot, a lot of rules nerds out there who just are, like, into the crunch. Like, and if you can pull out an OSE book or a basic fantasy and be like, hey, look, like, open it up and point out, hey, check this out. Like, this is how basic fantasy does racist class. Like, isn't that, like, interesting? And, like, show it to them. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, hey, I might want to check that out. You know, you don't necessarily have to go from the highfalutin, you know, ideological standpoint that I've been talking about where it's like, oh, the old school fantasy is better because of transcendent values or whatever. Yeah. Like, you can just yep. strictly go for the rules and be like, hey, man, like, racist class and OSE, like, here's why it's awesome. It, it, it gives you a lot of more role-playing opportunities. Uh, it can actually lead to better, like, flexibility in some instances because then your party has a more diverse composition. Like, not everyone is a spellcaster. Yeah. So, you know, in 5th in edition, that has, like, this infamous um, reputation for having... Everyone is some kind of spellcaster. Everyone has magic. Yeah. But if you go to old school, that's not the case. Like, the rogue is... The, the, the rogue or the thief is really a thief. Like, he really, like, delves into that role, and it makes you feel like you're having a better impact at the table... If you can explain that to like some of the the newer players who are into five e, they're probably going to get it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I would not recommend uh, immediately. You know, as soon as someone asks about old school gaming, or as soon as you're trying to pitch someone on old school gaming, be like, "Well, have you read Kierkegaard?" Yeah, that's, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're just talking about you know old school like fantasy in general, like. The fantasy genre and what it means and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think, I think the best way to describe it to prospective gamers who have never tried the game in in that way is to say, look, this is going to be an adventure where most things out there are hostile, most things want you dead, and it's going to be very easy for you to die. But if you survive, then you will become one of the greatest heroes that this realm has ever known. If you're able to overcome all of these obstacles, then the rewards are limitless. And I think that framing of there's high risk, but high reward, that's what's going to hook people in. Whereas, you know, you start off a lot of modern games already pretty powerful. But the journey in becoming... Uh, you know, a powerful hero, a powerful warrior, the the Luke Skywalker experience, for lack of a better word, going from right. farm boy to Jedi master. I think whether they know it or not, that's something a lot of people are missing. And that aspect of danger of, hey, this this could maybe go south really fast, but maybe it could also be awesome. I think that's something that... Uh, 
will bring a lot of gamers to the table. Especially if you look at modern fantasy um, video games, especially from From Software. Oh yeah, you know, Dark Dark Soul series, Elden Ring. Um, I I don't know a single fifth edition player who hasn't at least played one of those. Yeah, uh, who's in their twenties or thirties? You know, like and they know, like they know that the challenge is there. Like you can die. But if you don't die, you can get some insane like weapon. Like the reward is there. So what you're saying is true. It's like if you could maybe even uh, explain it to them in the same framework. Like, you know, have you played Elden Ring? Well, this isn't exactly that, but it's got the same feel. You know, you're gonna have to think about your decisions. You don't want to always attack and run in. You might want to flee if something looks too strong. You're going to have to think about your inventory and how to use that wisely. Like, yeah. if you explain, like, that tabletop experience, they're probably be like, oh, that sounds awesome. Like, and get into it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's interesting how, um, like, and I know this is, we're going on several shows in a row where I've mentioned this, but things like Berserk are incredibly popular. That is a dark fantasy horror manga. And, you know, stuff like Dark Souls, which Berserk is very influential on, which is a very difficult game uh, where essentially the gameplay loop is designed to knock you on your ass until you learn not to get knocked on your ass anymore. That stuff is popular. That stuff appeals to a lot of people. So why can't we reframe this idea of old school gaming in that mold make it we don't even have to make it resemble that it already resembles that we just have to put that forward and i i think one of the ways that we're going to have to do this and and this might get people throwing stones at me we might have to drop this whole notion of old school in the branding of it it is old school but when you present it as that you immediately trigger the okay boomer reflex. Right. Yeah, there's the, you know, everything that we do is what I would consider old school fantasy. You know, Chronicles of Iris, that picture I have right there, very reminiscent of Redwall. You know, we have animal characters. We're influenced by Redwall, Tolkien, all this type of stuff. That's fine. Like, you know, Mm. uh, there's probably a whole generation that's never read Redwall. That's fine. You can introduce it to them if you want, but it's like when it comes to the actual game mechanics, that's where you want to be like, oh, <laughs> you don't want to be like, oh, you're just you're gonna die. Good, good luck. Yeah, when you roll level one, you have one hit point. You don't want to introduce it that way and be just like a grognard. Mm-hmm. That's not going to convince anyone. Like you just you have to like build on the strengths of what it is and like the type of gameplay experience that it offers. Yeah, like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than saying, uh, r- rather than beginning with, you're going to die, I think you should begin with, how are you going to survive? Because when you frame it as you're going to die, you've essentially already removed this uh, sense that they have any control over their their character's fate from their minds. But when you say, how are you going to survive, you've given them a challenge. Right. And, like, with my Wilderkin book, like, I've discovered with Castles and Crusades, my races actually have more options, which was surprising to me. 
I thought 5th edition was so complex that I wouldn't be able to do what I wanted to do with Castles and Crusades. Mm-hmm. But that's the opposite. Like, my Castles and Crusades races have, like, seven abilities. Like, they're they're not, like, ridiculously powerful, but it just gives you so many different options, like seek hidden passages and look for hidden doors, and you have bonuses to, like, stealth. And, like, you can you can open up two books side by side and show the difference to somebody and be like, look at this, like, this 5e has this and this. That's cool, but look at this, Castles and Crusades you have a ton more different options and like people love like diversity and options and like character creation options, like stuff like that can really help convince somebody. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on is like, ignore the Twitter people. Like, you know, when we're dealing with like the culture war of, you know, the woke versus the, 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 you know, conservative OSR people, whatever, I'm part of that, and I'm not going to go too deep into it, but it's like, the Twitter sparker trolls, like, the assholes, like, they're they're a lost cause. Mm-hmm. Forget about them. Like, you're not going to convince them. There's nothing you can say that's going to, like, make them want to, like, get into old-school fantasy role-playing. Right. You got to go to your local game store. You have to You have to go to your Discord server. You have to interact with real, actual gamers that play the game and that are not there just to complain about some politics. That's how you're going to get converts into the old school way of gaming. Like you're not, you're not going to do it on Twitter. You've, you've got to actually get some boots on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, I feel like everyone who wants to kind of spread this old school uh, methodology of gaming. I, I feel like what you need to do is find your local gaming convention and uh, submit games to run. Because then you'll get people who are just curious about, you know, oh, this sounds interesting. You know, this uh, this thing that you've written up here on this, uh, you know, this short little entry for conventions, this sounds interesting. Then you get people that you've never interacted with before uh, who, who might not be familiar with the ideas that you can then introduce a new style of gaming to. So, you know, that that's almost like your your mission field, <laughs> to to use a, a, a weird analogy um, for role-playing games. Uh, you have to practice this, uh, you know, this method of gaming, and you have to you have to practice showing it to people who you've otherwise never interacted with to make sure that, you know, what you're showing them is actually interesting them. It is kind of annoying to me that we have to even have this discussion. Yeah. Like, for a long time, like, most of my life, like, th- this would have never been a thing. <laughs> like, just the way that RPGs were played and the way D&D was played was just accepted to be a certain way, and everyone thought that was cool. You know, all my friends thought that was awesome. Like, everyone was into old-school fantasy and Conan, and uh, all the Appendix N stuff, and Tolkien, we wanted to play a Tolkien campaign, and Dragonlance campaign, like, you know? Why is this even a discussion now? Like, why, where, where have we, how far have we fallen? What has happened here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and to, to mention what uh, Max Liao and, and Brian are talking about here in, in chat, uh, yeah, tw- Twitter is Ender's Game. 
Twitter is the uh, the simulated battles from Ender's Game, and I will stand by that. Yeah, <laughs> you're never gonna the the or war games. Yeah, the only way to win is not to play. Mm-hmm. Although Legion of Myth does say it's fun to to mess with them and get trolled and suspended, get reinstated, rinse repeat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that may be fun for some people, but I don't know if I want to do all that. It's not. Yeah, I mean too much. Well, I can see how Max's tactic there is he doesn't take it seriously, but he knows that other people out there are taking it seriously. And so, oh, yeah, that's fun. He takes great joy in tweaking their noses, which, you know, I I get it that, you know, I understand. Yeah. No, it's not real. Twitter isn't real to real actual people with lives and you know things that they enjoy max but twitter is real to uh some of the saddest people in society so uh you know i i fully understand and endorse what you're doing there max i i get it yeah i mean that goes back to what i was saying earlier what when you're going to your local game store and if you bring a stack of uh basic fantasy books which are cheap if not free i think you can get like the the soft cover for like five bucks. Sit down at a table and be like, hey, check out this game. Nobody's going to go on Twitter after that session and tweet about how racist you are because you were playing basic. Like, that right. doesn't that doesn't happen. Like, it's just, Twitter is just an illusory facade. It's like cast greater illusion six level, you know? It's like, hmm. you, you have to just forget about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, here's kind of a tactics question that I have for you. Um, what are your thoughts on, well, l- let's be honest here, what are your thoughts on lying to people? People who come to you and say, uh, you know, I want to play Dungeons and Dragons, or I want to play D&D, and you go, all right, we'll play D&D, and then you're playing something like Dungeon Crawl Classics or OSE. Um, you know, do you think that's kind of a, a viable tactic for getting to people just because they know the brand name, but you want to show them a, a different way? No, you know, that's not for me. It's not for me. You know, what I would do is be like, all right, cool. This is the latest version. This is fifth edition. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can do like a, uh, uh, Minds of Fandelver, uh, or, you know, like a couple of introductory quests. And after you get their feet wet a little bit into what D&D is about, and be like, okay, well, you've seen what 5th edition is about. This is, you know, kind of the newest thing, but a lot of people are moving towards the old stuff. Like, check this out, too. If they're into it, they're going to be into it. It just depends on your persuasiveness. But I wouldn't just be like, ah, yes, this is the best. I'm like, Dungeon Crawl Classics is a harsh mistress. You know, it's like... You know, you don't want to do something like that, like, because mm-hmm. then they're gonna leave the table and go to D and D Beyond and find out that everyone plays Fifth Edition, and they're just gonna think you're a nerd. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's just my opinion on it, though. Yeah, and I mean, I can, I, I use a variation of that. I don't lie to people and say, "Yeah, we're playing D and D," and then like have them run something else. But I say. If you want to play D&D, here is something that is similar to D&D. This is what I run at my tables. Um, I can certainly show you what the most recent version of D&D is like. Or, um, 
we can play this game and, you know, kind of give them the, the option yeah. there. Yeah, that's a good one. Who knows what's going to happen after 1D&D becomes a reality. That's going to change the whole landscape, mm-hmm. you know. Fifth edition might not even exist anymore. Then what are new players going to do? <laughs> mm-hmm. Go to the virtual tabletop, I guess. And apparently uh, in chat, there's this other game that some people seem to enjoy, like Planet Morning or Celestial Sunrise or something like that. I don't know. Sounds like it's for nerds. <laughs> what are they talking about? Earth Dawn? Yes. <laughs> you know, that's funny because... Uh... Not to get off track, but there's like a one of my followers is this Japanese guy, and he's like been my follower forever. He doesn't speak a lick of English, <laughs> and he plays the hell out of Earth Dawn. Mm-hmm. Like I was like translate. I saw some like posts that he made, and it looked kind of cool, like artwork or whatever. And I was like, I did Google Translate. He's talking about Earth Dawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, he's like a hardcore <laughs> Earth Dawn guy, and like him and all his Japanese friends play that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was real interesting. Like how random. I thought they played Sword World over there. You you must have encountered Max's brother-in-law. <laughs> I don't even know if Max has a brother-in-law. Anyway. But yeah, I I think Crafty um Crafty kind of backs you up on this. Uh People want to play D&D or play 5e. Trying to turn them away from it before letting them play is not... It's not a good idea. I, And I agree with you guys on that. Like, if they know what D&D is and they want to play the the game with the D, the ampersand, and the D on the cover, then yes, show it to them, run them through it, introduce them to D&D that way. But... It, and I probably should have reframed this better... People who use the term D&D as a catch-all for I want to play RPGs or even more broadly than that, and I, I say this from my own personal experience, I want you know, I am a fantasy fan and I want to try this role-playing thing that I've heard so much about, and the only word they know for it is D&D. It's like when people talk about mixed martial arts but call it all UFC. That's yeah. what I was referring to, not someone saying I want... I bought this 5e book. I want to, you know, figure out what's in here and you going, no, 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 we're not going to play that. So that's where you can also like get into always, always good idea to have a conversation with uh, new players about what, what are they looking for? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Yeah. So, you know, I would, oh, I kind of would just want, I play a lot of Final Fantasy fourteen. Is this like that? Well, I mean, you know, it, it's I mean, there's some elements of that, not really, but there's you know, you have a party with a fighter and a tank, so there is some elements of that. But if you're looking for the Final Fantasy fourteen experience, first of all, just continue playing the video game. But still, you know, if you want to have that at the table here, this might be a better system. So you know, that's how you might be able to take that approach. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have, like, somebody who's got fresh, like, super green, they've got the 5e books, they just saw Stranger Things, they're like, yeah, this looks cool. I, I want to get into D&D. But, okay, well, wh- what are you looking for? Oh, I want to play it like they do on Stranger Things. Like, that's how I saw, like, you know, the Hellfire Club. That's what this is, right? 
okay, well, yeah, I mean, there's some elements of that there, but, you know, that took place in the 80s. This is what they're playing in the Hellfire Club. That's when you can pull out your AD&D, you know, first edition, like Dungeon Master's Guide, and, like, show them, and they'll be like, oh! Like, because they actually use that as a prop in the show. Like, yeah. that's a good, like, segue. Like, so there's there's a way you can go about it just by kind of figuring out, you know, why they're into it, what they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the... Once I actually find the, the time to make these videos that I've been planning on making, one of the first ones that I'm gonna put out is a video about finding your fantasy. Because finding out what actually makes your imagination go wild is the first step to figuring out what system you're actually going to have fun playing because if you don't like westerns you're not going to enjoy deadlands or uh weird frontiers if you don't like uh you know super high powered fantasy where you're essentially a superhero you're not going to enjoy 5e if you don't like super low powered fantasy you're not going to enjoy you know osc so it's all about figuring out, like you said, what people are interested in, what's kind of bringing them to ask you, presumably someone knowledgeable about role-playing games. You know, where do we start? How do we get into this D&D thing? I, so sitting down and figuring out, you know, what books they read, what comics they like, what movies they like, and, you know, what really gets them excited as far as, uh, you know, escapist fiction goes I, I think that's a good first step i agree and that it coincides with exactly why i created the chronicles of Ares mm -hmm. and continuing to put out these books it's like we're 100 percent fifth edition up until recently you yeah. know open geo and stuff like that 100 percent fifth edition very overpowered you know, you're, if you roll a Chronicles of Iris character, it's going to be strong. Strong as hell. I made several classes that are custom and stuff like that. But the whole point of it for us was to bring the aesthetic feel, the flavor, the atmosphere, just the overall zeitgeist of old school fantasy to 5th edition. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you know, something like my books or like there's there's some other books out there that fill that niche like that could be a good choice like it's okay to have um a fifth edition table that's not in Strixhaven, but you're you're still running like old like an old school flavor like a tolkien-esque campaign a conan sword and sorcery uh adventure you can do that with fifth edition and have all the bells and whistles you can have the fantasy music you can have the old school artwork influences from all the stuff you grew up with in the eighties and the seventies. That's what we're about. You know, that's what we're there for. We're there for the flavor. If you have the flavor, that is just as good of a first step as if you had cracked open like a first edition AD and D book, you know, that's just, that's the whole reason why we did this. And I think that'll serve as a good transition point here to talk specifically about the, the work that you do. So, um, you know, you, you've mentioned uh, Chronicles of Iris several times. Um, if you were to give someone like an elevator pitch, uh, just to, you know, really get them hooked on what they can expect from Chron Chronicles of Iris, how would you put that to a prospective new player? Well... 
it depends on what their background is, but the Chronicles of Iris is essentially the distillation of all the best old school fantasy that we grew up with as guys in the 80s. We are influenced by Dragonlance, Tolkien, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, especially Prince Caspian, Redwall, The Secret of Nim, The Dark Crystal, uh, the Conan the Barbarian movies, mm. Willow, the never-ending story. Like We've got aspects of all the classic old-school fantasy stuff in our setting. But what we've done is we've tweaked and rewritten and molded that into our own vision that's cohesive. It's not completely a kitchen sink where you've got elements. It's not a hodgepodge. It's a cohesive setting that you can have adventures in. So if you want to play as Justin from The Secret of Nim going on a Tolkien-esque adventure, we can have that scenario in Iris. If you want to play as Conan the Barbarian, going like uh, climbing a tower to capture a treasure from the Skeksis, from the Dark Crystal, that type of scenario, not the exact terminology, of course, that's all copyrighted, but like mm. that feel, that same like idea of old school fantasy, like the mashup, that's what we're about. We, we satisfy that nostalgia itch. We're all about the super nostalgia, the old school feeling, the warm cockles in your heart that you get when you turn on a VHS tape and like, the the Conan the Barbarian like dun 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 that music pops in like we're all about the nostalgia that's what we do. Now, as far as uh, picking up your uh, specific books, where would you recommend people go? Obviously, you're on uh, drive through. You have your own website. You know, what is your personal recommendation for people who are looking to pick up your books? Right now, we're currently out of our books. Okay. Um, I have a lot of our first book, but it's at my co-author's house in his garage. So I actually have to go drive over there and pick up some copies in order to be able to ship it. So that's why our Shopify has zero stock right now. I'll be able to rectify that pretty soon. But if you want to pick us up, Drive Through RPG has all our digital books. We have a bundle that has all three of our adventures for like 12 bucks. So it's a really good deal. Like, most people would charge, like, 50 bucks for one of these things. But we've got, like, the artwork and some of our stuff is going to blow your mind. Like, you're not going to pick up, like, third-party stuff this good with this type of artwork for that price. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, Brian, James, and chat, what do you guys think of the Shannara Chronicles? Um, I'll mm. answer first just because my answer is quick. I've never read the books, and... Uh, I've never seen the show, so I don't think about it. It's I'm not sorry. good. <laughs> it's like a it's like an MTV version of Shannara Chronicles. It's yeah. like really poor. But yeah, Brian is all about that Excalibur, the 1981 classic. Love that movie, and that's you know that's that's see look how excited Brian is about this. He's yeah. talking about Excalibur, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer. Like, that's the type of, like, excitement that we hope that we can instill in people who open up our books and, like, go through it and be like, I remember that. Like, this is cool. Like, this reminds me of, like, the Dark Crystal. Like, that's the type of, like, vibe I want. Like, I want people to, like, feel like they're, like, 
getting back into their childhood with their stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, in addition to uh, Chronicles of Iris, you also have uh, a- another kind of completely different game in the works uh, that has to do with uh, with kaiju. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I, I have an advertisement for it. I don't know if you can pull that up. If not, that's okay. But uh, it is our next project, which is actually fortuitous because it has nothing to do with the open game license, nothing to do with Wizards of the Coast. We've been working on this for six months. Um, Titans of Fallen Earth is the name of the game. And it is a post-apocalyptic, cyberpunk, old-school, 1980s, anime-influenced, giant monsters versus mecha tabletop role-playing game. Uh, it's have Mad Max influences, Akira, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, like all kinds of stuff from the 80s. It's going to be awesome. You're going to be able to play as a mech pilot, actually can play as a kaiju giant monster you can play as a super soldier a mutant uh it's gonna have like fast paced like high hitting combat combat is going to be the major focus because you know it's it's giant monsters versus mecha mm-hmm. but we're developing our own like d6 system we're influenced by weg star wars it's going to be a d6 dice pool system and uh we have a ton of artwork and war already going we've done some play testing sessions for combat like early on and that those were successful so hopefully that will be released this year gotcha sounds like it'll be uh a, a real hoot for people who are fans of uh like common rider or super sentai or uh yes you know, armor trooper bottoms and you know stuff like that yep armor trooper bottoms we have mechs directly influenced by that we've got all of them all of my artists are like comic book guys who are super into godzilla and kaiju and common writer that type of stuff they all know about it i don't have anyone here like in our project who doesn't like is not super into it mm-hmm. so it's going to be very authentic uh to that feel and to that atmosphere of like giant monster stuff um get a robo uh let's see you know gundam of course is an influence on us it just goes on and on even like like random stuff like super metroid like you know has influenced like some of our designs there so that's going to be a fun game and what we want to do with uh titans of fallen earth is take the core system which is a d6 system we're going to do our own like generic version that you can have plugins for fantasy horror alternate sci-fi you know it's going to be like a i don't want to say it's a universal game license because everyone's doing that now but mm-hmm. we will have our own license for that as well gotcha yeah and i mean d6 systems um especially if it's inspired by uh you know weg star wars what you're going to be in for uh hopefully is you know fast-paced and very cinematic gameplay so right uh, it'll be perfect for kind of rep- replicating those massive, uh, you know, large scale kaiju battles from all of those, uh, you know, anime and, and TV series that, that people love and, and will be inspired by who want to pick up this game. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, I don't have an official website for it just yet because we, we do have some websites registered for it, but we're working on a live-action trailer that we want to release that I hope will go viral, so Ooh, I haven't put it up nice. yet, but yep, hopefully it'll be awesome. I like rolling 20d6, 30d6. <laughs> That's what we're aiming for with this thing. You think Godzilla's atomic breath is going to be less than a 20d6? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> now, uh, is this going to go, like, is this just going to be straight up released, or is this going to go on, like, Kickstarter or something like that? We're going to do a Kickstarter. Sweet. I th I'm thinking it's going to be around June. I'm, I'm getting that kind of feel from where we're at, probably June, July. Gotcha. But yeah, this is going to be our next big thing. Totally independent from Dungeons & Dragons. We're going to continue Dungeons & Dragons, or Castles and Crusades, as the case may be. But yeah, this will be our own thing. I hope it succeeds. Anybody who's into Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, that type of stuff, even Gundam, you know, Mecha, like, if you were, if you like that at all and you play RPGs, we're not going to disappoint you. Absolutely. And also, we're not going to be super woke, so don't worry about that. That's good. That's, that's always <laughs> good. I, I, I'm struggling to think of ways that, you know, Kaiju and Mecha could turn woke, but, you know, if I start questioning how that happens someone's <laughs> going to start linking stuff in chat and showing me examples of places where that has happened and i'm just going to be sad for the rest of the day so uh, we're just <laughs> well gonna... you know what it's it is it's, it's a modern it's a modern futuristic setting hmm. right influenced by cyberpunk so obviously there are things like transhumanism and cyberpunk you know there's different like politics and like gender identity stuff could potentially be a part of it but that's not something that I really care about or that I'm focusing on. I really just want to see giant monsters blow buildings up. Yeah. Yeah, and you want to launch your rocket fist at Godzilla's jaw. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's what life's all about. <laughs> now, unfortunately, we are kind of running up against our time here. Uh, this has been a... Uh, a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you about this, Greg. So we'll have to have you back on again. Um, w once you get closer to the, uh, the launch of your Kickstarter campaign, uh, let's bring you on and I'll see if I can bring a couple more people on as well. And we can do a whole, uh, Kaiju focused show. I'll see if uh, sure. something like that can, can be pulled together. I'm sure Levi Combs would want to be in on that one. That'd be great. So uh, tell, Le tell Levi Combs to follow me on Twitter. He absolutely. currently does not. <laughs> I, or better yet, what you you can I, I don't know what your work situation would be like, but if you come to North Texas uh, this year, uh, we we can meet up, and I will introduce you to Levi Combs in person if you haven't met him in person already, and and we can have that conversation with him together. <laughs> sure, I don't mind. Maybe there will be a convention or something out there. I can get out there. Absolutely. So before we go, uh, there is one final question that you have to answer, because everyone has to answer it when they come on Rolling Bones. I like to save this one for the end here, but uh, Greg, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Anything on a t-shirt. God. 
what would that be? I don't know. I probably, if I, if I, shit, that's a tough question. Is that why you asked that? Yes. God damn it. The answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Probably a picture of a Philly cheesesteak sandwich. Because that's, because that's like my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> hey, I, there's nothing better than a good Philly cheesesteak. Yeah, that's what I want right now. Man, the, <sighs> Nashville is a Philly cheesesteak desert. I'll tell you that for a fact. I, I can imagine. North Carolina, though, not. There, there is a great place in the Charlotte area to get Philly cheesesteaks. But Nashville, just forget about it. Forget about it. Forget about it. Well, guys, unfortunately, that's going to do it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. I, I wish we could go for another hour here with Greg because this has been a fantastic conversation. But, you know, like I said, we will get you back on at some point in the not too distant future. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm sorry if we rambled too much about philosophy and stuff like that. But, you know, hopefully uh, some people will uh, get some enjoyment out of the discussion so hope you have a good one hey, my, my entirely useless philosophy degree is right over here uh to my right so it's nice to actually be able to use that every now and then so <laughs> nice <laughs> all right thanks again no problem all right so guys that you know like i said that's going to be it for tonight uh to answer brian james's question here in chat what's going down in north texas is of course north texas rpg convention That'll be happening uh, towards the end of May, headed into early June of this year in uh, you know Irving, Texas. I will be there. I will be running games. If you want to get in on a game of Nighthaven, so just hearing me kind of vaguely ramble about it like you have for the past couple years, uh, you'll be able to do that in North Texas. You'll also be able to see people like Levi Combs. Uh, like Lou Alu here in chat, he's usually there and always great to hang out with, great to uh, be in one of his games. Uh, so, you know, that'll be a good opportunity to, you know, meet up with me, say hi, you know, meet some great creators and, uh, you know, play some new games. Yeah. Real quick, I wanted to throw in, I forgot to mention. Go for it. Uh, we will be at the Savannah, Georgia, an amazing expo. On uh, February 11th, so it runs from February 10th to February 12th. Uh, it is an anime gaming, you know, traditional convention. Uh, we're going to be selling all of our books there. Look for Dueling Dragon Adventures. We'll have a big banner. So if you're in the Georgia or Southeast area, you want to go to Savannah, a lot of historical stuff you can look out there. We'll be at the Savannah Convention Center. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Savannah is beautiful, so definitely make your way out there it'll at least be warm for you in february yeah <laughs> and then uh next week uh he is finally going to be coming on the show uh you know him you love him you've probably either liked all of his tweets or argued with him several times on twitter uh but the one and only Crossface will be joining us next week to discuss uh an oddly polarizing topic and that is running games rules as written so if you want to see uh me and crossface talk about running rules as written and uh you know probably a little bit of talk about martial arts and mma as well that'll be the show for you this time next tuesday the 31st but until then whether you rolled a one or a 20 i'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me 
Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.